The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Has Warren Buffett lost his touch? And how is President Donald Trump's decision to delay tariffs on Chinese goods being received in Beijing? Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hello. Now, later in the show, we'll be handing the mic over to Pete Sweeney, our Asia economics editor. He'll be grilling another of our colleagues, Chris Bedore, about what seems to be a detente in the US-China trade war. We start, though, by paying a visit to the Oracle of Omaha and the rotten performance of one of his biggest recent investments, food purveyor Kraft Heinz. To help us sift through the mess, we are joined on the line from Dallas by Lauren Silver-Loughlin. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Al. And with us in the studio is John Furley. Hi, John. Hi there. So, John, let's just um, quickly, if you could, recap for our listeners what has been going on. Why is Kraft in so much trouble at the moment? They had earnings last week. What happened? So, in short... Kraft came out with earnings on Thursday night. Kraft obviously makes everything from baked beans to that disgusting cheese called Velveeta um, that Americans love so much. Uh, it announced a huge write-down of the value of some of its core brands, including the Kraft brand, which is right. quite embarrassing. Um, took a big loss. Shares have fallen since then by about a third. So if you imagine a company of that size um, falling by a third, basically yeah. overnight, that's a real screw-up. Right. And... Um, Lauren, um, you've looked at uh, the various iterations of this company for a while. How long has Warren Buffett been involved in this particular institution? So he had first invested um, in Heinz in 2013, and then he helped um, with the merger with Kraft in 2015. Uh, so he's been in there for several years like he normally does. He takes a position, then holds it for a very long time. Okay, but he's normally known for someone who, you know, once he picks a firm, it's often not always, obviously. We can look at others like Wells Fargo, but it often does well. This one has gone, oh, it's become a bit of a dog's breakfast pretty quickly since the merger. Um, and John, you said it's down about thirds since the earnings, but it's down about two thirds in the past two years. So problems have been building up for a while. Lauren, what, what are those problems? What do we see going wrong or, or not going right for Heinz? They have they have several problems. Um, But the main one is that they just they aren't growing their their top line and they aren't doing what they need to do to reinvest in the business. Um, And that's not a problem that's totally unusual to the uh, consumer goods sector. The issue really is that there are other large owner, 3G, which is essentially a a private equity firm, um, has a strategy to do exactly what they're doing at Kraft. And so the issue that's starting to crop up is that um, perhaps 3G's sort of normal playbook that they've been taking around to various different companies is not working. And the write-down that they took specifically is what is causing, I think, investors specifically to be most concerned. Okay. So, I mean, John, Buffett is said the other day on in an interview that um, I mean it was no big surprise I suppose considering the rightness didn't you we overpaid for Heinz. Um, what do we read into that though? I mean isn't it more more the issue that he also said that some of the brands just aren't big enough? I mean that is something they should have known from the start. What what, what have they missed here? What do we does this cause us to worry about Buffett and 3G in general? Let's start with just Buffett. For well, me. there are two things to know really about Buffett in terms of his relationship with Kraft Heinz. One is that although the shares have fallen a lot, he has actually done quite well. So even after the latest fall in the share price, we went through the various filings to work out what he'd put in and what he'd got out. And he's basically still about 50% up based on 
what he put in when he first invested in Heinz in 2013. So, right. so he and he got all kinds of whizzy extras like you know options and um, a kind of preferred stock basically that paid back. So this is he, he uh, paid, at does a high a, rate than It's kind else. of his, his his modus operandi. He did that. He's gone and done that for years. He did it with Solomon Brothers. He did it with uh, some of the banks in GE during the crisis. Yeah. So, so he so he gets it. He usually gets sweeties on the side, and he did right. here too. But he and 3G are both about fifty percent. So although this is embarrassing for them, they're still. If you're an investor with Warren Buffett, you've done okay. The other thing that is kind of more crucial here is that I, I feel like if you're Warren Buffett right now, you have two jobs. One is to identify companies that are good by your own definition of what's a good company. And for Buffett, that's often companies with good pricing power. The other job Buffett has at the moment is to hire smart people. He's actually kind of laying the groundwork for his own succession. He's, you know, he's very elderly now. Mm. He's still going strong, but at some point, someone else will be running Berkshire Hathaway. So he's got to pick and has picked a couple of people. Um, Greg Abel and Ajit Jain, who who are likely to succeed him. Now, with Kraft, he got both of these things really wrong. He picked a company that has, it seems, no pricing power. People will not pay a premium for baked beans anymore, and you can see this in their results because they're selling more stuff, but they're selling it for low prices. So he failed on that score. And he's also picked the wrong guys to run it. He's backed 3G, which has the strategy of aggressive cost cutting, which worked for a while, but hasn't really worked uh, recently. They're not seemingly very good at innovating and creating new products. So so the two things that Warren Buffett is most famous for, he basically fumbled. All right. So I want to, um, Lauren, go back to a point you're making to kind of piggyback off what John just said. I mean, you, you were talking about 3G and kind of their very specific strategy, right? Because maybe you can talk a little bit more about this because I, I hear about this uh, it pops up in other uh, companies' earnings from time to time where th- 3G doesn't have a hand. Um, and, and kind of against this backdrop that, look, if you're a consumer goods company, you're kind of in dire straits anyway. It's really hard to get pricing power. You know, people don't want macaroni and cheese in a box. So what specifically about 3G um, is is the problem? Well, if you look at some of Kraft's competitors, for example, like Unilever, um, and even if you broaden that out a little bit and looked at Procter and Gamble um, and how it's shifted strategy, what they're trying to do is, is a couple of things. And one is to buy new brands that are maybe a little bit more hip and healthier to tr- sort of reach the millennial consumer and beyond who have started to change their preferences for healthier foods and um, other consumer goods. Um, and so one is using cash to buy s- stuff that you don't currently already own. And the second is to use cash to invest in your own products. Essentially, you know, Kraft and P&G and Unilever are all just marketing entities and they have to spend money to make their product look better, to make it sound better, and in some ways to make it better themselves. 3DG does the opposite. Um, it cuts costs, you know, and I've heard some sort of anecdotes about, you know, how they don't offer coffee, this or that. And, um, and you know, you start to question whether that's a really innovative place, whether they're attracting the best type of people who want to work there to have a sort of creative mind to reinvent craft in the way that it needs to operate in this new environment of, uh, of consumer, consumer goods companies. Company. Um, and so with this write down, investors are sort of taking that as a reflection that the brands have been degraded. So in fact, you know, could it be that 3G's cost cuts have have kept Kraft from reinventing in ways that other um, its other competitors have? And if you look at the way the stock prices of Kraft and Unilever have diverged, you know, it seems like they're onto something. Yeah, and and also just to kind of um, step back even further, um, Kraft tried to buy Unilever, right? And then Unilever rebuffed them because they said, we don't like your 
we don't like the way you do business, basically. Yeah, essentially, that was one of the reasons why they gave for not wanting to have Kraft as their owners. And, you know, looking again at the value of the two companies over the past couple of years, you know, essentially almost two years to the day, um, they seem to have made the right choice. Do you know, the thing that for me, for me sums up the problem at Kraft, if you meet the CEO of Kraft, who's this guy, Bernardo Hees, very likable, um, adorably committed to the company, wears a monogrammed Kraft Heinz shirt. But when when they start talking about innovation, there's just nothing really there. Like the innovation, Kraft's idea of innovation is things like Kraft mayonnaise. But hey, guess what? Mayonnaise is already a thing. You didn't invent that. They ha- they have a couple of kind of neat ideas, like these kind of Jello playsets where kids can like build little castles out of Jello. But what they're clearly really good at is cutting costs. And I feel like it's kind of really easy to sort of say that was the wrong thing to do. But actually, cutting costs is really important. You need managers who are really good at cutting costs. It's just that you also need them to have a bit of imagination when it comes to creating fancy products that people will actually pay a premium price for. Well, this seems to kind of go back to the zero-based uh, budget, right, which is what 3G is famous for. But, I mean, to your point, like, maybe the only reason why they came up with craft mayonnaise is because they didn't have enough money uh, to, to really think about something that's different and new when you're just, like, always, like, having to pinch your pennies. You're just going to be, like, going into the cupboard, so to speak, and having to do with what you have. Right. So, Unless you can create products that, like, you charge a premium for. You know, you sell someone a dollar's worth of baked beans, but they pay $10 because it's got the word paleo written on the front of it or something. If they can do that, that's great. But their products don't lend themselves to that kind of thing. I think the other issue that may be going on is um, if, if we could even bring this out even farther and take a look at some other iconic American companies and say that, like, the whole idea of, of business school jargon being applied across a large company is falling by the wayside. And so, you know, when people say zero cost budgeting or whatever that is, um, it's unclear that any of these things have proven to really work very well. Six Sigma from GE is another. Um, and the concept of innovation in light of disruptors and, and sort of changing consumer habits is something that's extremely important that companies need to I think sort of shift their mentality. There's a case to be made, and a lot of people might disagree with this. Lauren, you might also disagree with me on this. But I think that Kraft potentially could come back from this quite strongly because if they do realize that they had the cost cutting down but weren't doing the right things to innovate, and they can do both from now on, then you would have a company that actually is the envy of a lot of other consumer goods giants. However, uh, it's difficult, as you say, to pivot into being more creative. But if they use this as a learning moment, and if Buffett accepts that he just picked the wrong horse then Kraft could actually come back stronger. That assumes that Kraft has cash, which they can't create out of thin air. No, it also assumes that, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, John, that that 3G changes its spots, so to speak. I mean, you've got a 3G guy running Kraft Heights. Um, and you've also got to think, well, you know, their whole model for the almost 20 years have been in existence or so has been, let's go out and buy, cut costs, and yet we'll hold it for a long time. So unlike private equity, they'll hold these companies longer than the three or four or five years. But because they don't seem to have Im- Im- implemented the strategy at companies where they can be needed, they've relied that the, the tool of zero-based budgeting or the tool of cost-cutting has almost become the strategy, and that's the problem. And shifting that maybe is the big challenge is the big challenge for them so um from 3g's perspective where we've got to wait and see what they do and if they can respond uh, to this and of course they have other investments in other companies that that we'll be watching um 
But John, last last thing to you. Um, what does this say? I mean, going back to the headline of the piece, does this mean that Warren Buffett has lost his touch? Buffett has a huge cult following, and that's not really going anywhere. It's going to take more than this to really dent that. And we'll see when he has his annual meeting in May how many tens of thousands of people show up to worship at the altar of the Sage of Omaha. If you ask me if he's lost his touch, I would say that the answer, based on what we've seen in Kraft, is yes. Excellent. Right, we'll leave it there. I'm sure you'll be reporting more on this, the two of you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. So I am here in Hong Kong with Christopher Bador, and we are sort of scratching our heads, shaking our heads, something about uh, the recent announcement by Trump that he's going to delay implementation of 25% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. Um, I guess this was sort of expected, Chris, right? I mean, we weren't really expecting them to come through with a big deal in three months, were we? Yeah, no, I I think that it was largely expected. And thanks in no small part to the Trump administration kind of signals that it had been giving in recent weeks. Um, but, I mean, I also think it's fair to say that the Chinese from, from literally day one of this trade truce when it was brokered on December 1st always figured that they would get up to the deadline and then say, look, we made pretty substantive progress. We just got to take it over the finish line now. Just give us, you know, another couple months or whatever it is. Well, what do we make of the other signs of softening. I mean, some are, people are con- quite concerned, you know, that by signs that three months will, will pass and we will end up with a fundamentally much softer deal than I think a lot of American hardliners, you know, maybe even some Char- Chinese reformers had hoped for, namely that Trump appears to have softened significantly on, on the Huawei case. He seems quite satisfied with China's blandishments over we're going to import a whole ton of soybeans. I mean, there's been this, he, he seems okay with Chinese 5G all of a sudden. Across the board, you know, people are starting to see that Trump is backing off from this hardline China, China, China guy, and that what we might end up with in terms of a, a, a concession from China is really negligible in terms of its structural impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it has been interesting, the pivot recently, especially if you think about it from a sort of a a Chinese perspective. Um, He's been very, very unpredictable in the past. Um, Whether it's early on during the trade war when it started, he he seemed to break in a very hawkish direction at the last moment, and now he seems to be breaking in a more dovish direction. So from the Chinese perspective, it's obviously moving in the right direction. Whether it'll stay in the right direction is a different question, but I also want to get your take on, on what you make of it. Well, I mean, it's quite interesting how the economics are playing into this, right? I mean, so arguably... Trump, you know, is quite concerned with the stock market, almost like one of the main economic indicators he views as a proxy for the economic success of his administration, right? And he was fine with the trade war and the hardball so long as the market was rallying. But once, you know, tensions started infecting sentiment, you know, and it wasn't the only factor at play in Chinese, in American stock markets, it was certainly one of them. And you had this big sharp drop in the S&P in 2018, he seemed to change his tune. Um, at the same time, you know, he seems to be like this kind of insecure guy widely in terms of diplomacy, right? I mean, he likes he's, he, he started off quite harsh with China, the way he started off harsh with, with South Korea. But then at a certain point, he seems to just want people to like him. Um, so he had this kind of vent. And then he's like, well, you know, actually, you know, Leo is a great guy. She makes a good, great guy. Kim Jong Un's a great guy. You know, everything's gonna be fine. Um, so I don't know what to make of it. But the, the fundamentals are, are, are quite interesting. Because I mean, uh, the, uh, 
apparently the Chinese economy is is really quite under pressure here in a way that the United States isn't. Like the US, China has this huge export sector, right? I mean, the central bank may have had to adjust their their monetary policy in part due to the uncertainty introduced, you know, by the prospect of trade war. You know, they're they're trying to get companies to borrow and invest more. You know, that's been falling. You know, so arguably the pressure was working, but uh, but you know, Trump has backed off, and and that might free them up to ease up. I, I don't know how you see. You know, the recent economic performance in this light, though. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that uh, the Chinese economy, I mean, it's clearly slowing. The question, only question is how much, um, if it's, you know, accurately reflected in official data. And, I mean, equity markets in particular um, have obviously come back a little bit this year, but they took... Oh, now they're up 20%. That's pretty, right, pretty right. good. Right, <laughs> But they took a, a pretty deep dive last year. Yeah. Um, part of that related to the, the trade war. Um, but I think, I mean, at kind of a almost like very fundamental level. Um, the question then becomes, uh, if we do a trade deal, do things just go back to the way they were before? So China agrees to do X, Y, and Z, buy a little bit more soy or whatever it is, and then goes back to some of the same industrial policies, maybe even currency manipulation that we saw, well, say, a decade ago. doesn't this sign of softness feed into that, though? I mean, there's one theory, at least, that the Chinese reformers were finally getting you know, some wind at their backs, thanks to this tough guy Trump attitude that he was going to serve as this excuse, you know, for them to push for these reforms that China, China's, you know, economic liberalizers want, you know, we want, we don't want our state banks to be giving cheap credit to giant SOEs to, you know, drive down profit margins. And, you know, we don't, we want to improve competitiveness. We want efficiency. We don't want bad debt. You know, our current system isn't working for us. And here's this great excuse, you know, is the U.S. coming and beating us up. I mean, how weakened do you think this, this – how much weaker are they because of this? The reformist faction – well, I think that you hit on a great point, which is that um, China has a proud history of using external shocks essentially to force you know, domestic reforms. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not so, us. I mean, I mean, the best example was <laughs> accession to the WTO, um, which was used as an excuse to kind of undertake very painful reforms at home that hardliners did not want to undertake. I think that's, that's definitely true today. Um, but I think that, you know, the full extent of kind of how much reform does this induce at home, I don't think we can tell until we see the actual deal itself. Well, let me flip it, though. I mean, do you expect China, the, like the conservatives, to come back? I mean, you had a, but arguably an accelerated pace, at least, of of market openings that had been promised but not delivered. And, and they yes. have been delivered. You know, there's been liberalization to, to foreign stakes in, in banks, you know, automobile joint ventures. I mean, there's there's been market opening. Do you anticipate that slowing? I mean, should we look for, for you know, the, the right-wing guys to say, well, this is all we need to do, that and some soybean orders, and we're good. Let's just leave it here. Is is that likely if, if this upcoming deal is soft? So I'll go on and limb and say, I, no, I don't think it is. Um, I think that in general, when Beijing knows that capitals, whether it's Washington, D.C. or Brussels or where have you, are watching it, they're watching it like a hawk to see if there's any kind of indication that they're going back to the bad old ways, I think that uh, they tend to kind of, you know, they're not dumb. They they know that they should kind of stick to the script. Well, let's hope so, and let's hope the economic forces cooperate. Um, thanks for talking to me, Chris. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Lauren Silva-Laughlin, John Foley, Chris Bedore, and Pete Sweeney for joining us. And we extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com, subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.